If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn and grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 516. It's normal here, if you've been with us through any length of time at Redeemer, that what you'll find in our services is that we tend to bounce back and forth between the Old and the New Testament, and it's not just a bouncing around between the Testaments, but across the different genres of Scripture. And so as we concluded a few months' study through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, uh, we came to a time where we're going to pivot to the Old Testament in the morning sermon. And I remember talking with the elders and saying, at least in the four years that I've been here, we haven't yet in the morning service pursued anything of poetry or wisdom in the Old Testament together. And so, Lord willing, we begin a series that will take us about four months in Psalms 120 through 134, Psalms that are commonly referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. So stand with me as I want to read this morning's psalm, this seven verses, a very simple yet perhaps surprising way to start out a journey to Jerusalem, as it would have been sung and prayed along the way. After I read those verses, I'll pray for God's blessing in our study and we'll begin together. So here now as God speaks to you through his word this morning. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me, that I sojourn in Meshech, and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do come into your presence this morning knowing that you speak to us by your word and spirit, asking even now that you would speak to us directly, faithfully and convictingly and compassionately as we want to respond to your word. Help us to hear with earnestness and hearts of repentance for me to preach as you say I must as a steward of your gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I grew up in a church tradition that didn't have a whole lot of emphasis on the Psalms. Perhaps some of you grew up in a quite opposite tradition. Some of you, I know even in this room today, you sang Psalms and only Psalms in the churches of your youth or perhaps even into adulthood. And my experience was quite different and maybe yours was kind of like mine. It wasn't as though that the Psalms were in any way relegated in any part of, of Christian pursuits of piety. It's just that they were kind of there to be used whenever you wanted to glance through them. There's a smattering of verses that we knew well, perhaps even a few Psalms we could quote verbatim the entirety of what God's Word said. Perhaps for many of you it's Psalm 23. But certainly in the churches of, of my youth, you would never really hear sermons on the Psalms. Rarely would you hear people praying through the language of the Psalms, and you most definitely never sang Psalms. But if you know anything about church history, no matter the tradition of Christianity, what you'll find throughout God's work in the centuries is God's people always giving a unique emphasis 
and preeminence even in spirituality to what God has spoken through the Psalms. You might know that Jesus Christ and his disciples on the night he was betrayed, they were singing psalms together on the way out toward the Mount of Olives. You might know by the end of the 4th century that ordinary pastors were exhorting all of their members to memorize psalms, to always be singing the psalms. Athanasius, a man in the 4th century who was this great defender of Orthodox Christianity, would always write letters encouraging his members to pray each day through a series of psalms. Augustine, that mighty father of even into the 5th century, he said, they're a mirror for our soul. Everything our soul feels, the psalms reveal. Then if you kind of span the centuries forward, you get to a man named Bernard of Clairvaux that would say something like, meditation on the Psalms prepares one for a holy death. John Calvin himself said, there's no book in the Bible more apt to ready men to praise God than the Psalms. Martin Luther said, it's the Bible in miniature, these Psalms. And then when you get to the 19th century and his magisterial work, its commentary on the Psalms, Presbyterian pastor William Plummer says this, Godly people here and all over the earth have found and can find no writings more suitable for delineating their devout emotions and for expressing their holy affections than the inspired psalms. If to any man these songs are unsavory, the reason is found in the blindness and depravity of his own heart. Christians love the psalms. Christians sing them, pray them, read them. Because, of course, Christians know when you read, you pray, and you sing psalms, what are you doing but reading, praying, and singing the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I wonder what place of prominence or place of usefulness the psalms have in your own life. Do they give your soul words for what it's feeling when your mouth doesn't know what to express? Do they sanctify your emotions and affections before the Lord? Because every emotion and affection that a human can experience are found in these prayers and songs. And so what we're going to do, Lord willing, as I said, for the next four months or so, we'll make our way through the 15 psalms that are commonly referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. The old King James would refer to them as a song of degrees. You could also translate that phrase something like, Ode on the Steps. As best we can tell, these are prayers and songs that God's people would sing as they would make their way up to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. And as they're going on the way up, ascending to God's place, they were giving their hearts over to the Lord that He might, through His ministry of the Spirit, as they were preparing to worship Him, fit their soul to do so faithfully, to do so dependently. And so these are prayers for pilgrims. You know, kids, it's important for you to know early on in your life that Christians are, are pilgrims. And what that means is, of course, as we, in just a few weeks, our nation will think a lot about pilgrims, won't they? They'll think about people who are journeying to another world. Now, this world is not our home. We don't belong here. We're sojourners and aliens here on the earth, always marching forward, aren't we? Ascending ever upward, not to earthly Jerusalem but to Mount Zion above, to heavenly Jerusalem, where we too will meet with God in His house. And so these are our prayers. These are songs that are meant to help you on those steps up to glory. How you can bring God your hurts, your joys, your sorrows, and your celebrations, and find Him sanctifying them through His Word. 
So I've titled this study, A Cry for Peace. That basically is a simple way to understand the psalm. It's telling us the main point today is that pilgrims long for peace. Godly pilgrims strive for peace. It's got three simple sections to it. I've just marked those sections off with words of deliverance, deceit, and distress. First, we want to notice in verse 1 and 2 a prayer for deliverance. Look again what we're told. This is a song of ascents. And the psalmist begins, In my distress, I called to the Lord. You see the accent that the psalmist placed here on God, calling to God. That verb there, called, it's normally used in the Old Testament for the language of worship. You can think of patriarchs gathering around altars where there they would call on the name of the Lord. But this is a, a psalm that's not about praise, it's more about petition. That's why you might have a translation in front of you that reads, In my distress I cried to the Lord. That's probably a better way of understanding that verb. You know, like a, a toddler will cry out for a parent's help. Here is the psalmist crying out for the Lord's help in his distress. That word there, distress, means something like shut in, imprisoned, trapped. He's feeling spiritually bound. And who can he look to but to the Lord? It's certainly a truth, isn't it, of growing in godliness. That the more you mature in Jesus Christ, the greater is your knee-jerk reaction to pray to Jesus Christ in every circumstance and situation. That's one of the greatest marks, isn't it, of godliness. The impulse from the start to go to the Lord. When a blessing falls, you pray in thanksgiving. When you succumb to sin, you pray in repentance. When you need strength, you pray for His power. When you need guidance, you pray for His wisdom. Don't we all know that every moment of our life, we can go to the Lord because He alone can bring that which we need. Well, he feels trapped, this psalmist. He's shut in. Who's going to let him out of the prison but God Himself? And you'll see why he's so confident in God's power. You'll notice the end of verse 1. He recalls that in this distress, he answered me. Now, students, you might have someone in your life, perhaps a friend or perhaps a family member, I suppose, that if you were to pick up the phone later on today, maybe even tomorrow, and were to call them on the phone, you are pretty confident they would never answer so maybe you don't ever call them. Maybe you send some sort of a message to them instead. But even when you send the message, you think, well, at least it's going to be a few hours before they respond to me. Perhaps it may be even days. I have someone in my life that's weeks later that will respond to text messages that I sent. And the good news, of course, what we see here in verse 1 is God is not like that. He always hears. He always answers. But do know that He will answer perhaps in ways you don't expect Satan's going to get you to think when God isn't answering directly and immediately that he's not answering. But isn't it true that he normally answers in ways we wouldn't expect? At times we wouldn't expect? But he's still answering, isn't he? And perhaps sometimes in the midst of our waiting, as this psalmist seems to be doing, what we need to remember is God has answered prayers in the past. All of us who have lived any length of time in Jesus Christ, we could go home today and write document-long lists, couldn't we? Of all the ways, perhaps even just this year, God has answered our prayers. So as we're waiting Him to answer prayers of this week, we know that He will do it because He's done it before. He's trapped. Why is He trapped? Notice verse 2. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. He's imprisoned by language. 
Even the language of deceit, it pictures in the original arrows being shot. It has this sense of shooting. So kids, you can picture lips that lie, hearts that deceive, as doing nothing more than taking arrows of evil and striking them into your heart. And perhaps you know that words have that power, don't they? To drive ever so deep. I was raised in a Christian home, have been in churches my entire life. Therefore, I've, I've heard sermons my entire life. Like many of you. And perhaps also like many of you, I don't remember very many sermons that I've heard along the way. Even the ones I do remember, normally it's just a, a statement or a sentence that was said that the Spirit kind of stuck to my soul. Well, one of those sermons that struck in that way was one that was given at this missionary camp that my family used to attend in the summers. I was probably somewhere between 8th and ninth grade. And I remember one evening, the youth leader of the group of the high school students uh, opened up his Bible and began to give a message from James chapter 3. If you know anything about James chapter 3, it's the longest teaching in all the Bible on the use of the tongue and its power, and sometimes its bruising power. And he began by saying this, now some of you, your parents or perhaps teachers have told you, sticks and stones may break your bones. But words will never hurt me. And of course he said, sticks and stones, they'll break your bones. But words will hurt even worse. Uh, what you know from experience, and even the Bible is showing us in verse 2, that, rip, that words can rip even ever sharper than a razor. That they can cut in a way even a physical blade cannot. That this man, for reasons we don't truly understand and frankly don't even need to understand, he is being assaulted by the arrows of lies and deceit. Some of you know that experience intimately, and I trust that you know that Christ's sympathy is with you. For what was our Lord Jesus Christ, but often reviled, often deceived, often slandered, misrepresented, defamed along the way with words. So it's a prayer for deliverance from the prison of these words, these deceitful tongues. Verse 3 and 4 then give us a warning about deceit. Because you notice he asks a question, the psalmist does. Verse 3, what shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? You know, kids, it's a good question to ask before you see the answer, don't glance down at it in verse 4. What happens to deceitful tongues? What happens to lips that lie? Well, he answers his own question with a metaphor from the ancient world. You see verse 4? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. That's what deceitful tongues get. Now, students, you might read verse 4 and think, well, I don't really understand what they get. Warriors, sharp arrows, glowing coals of the broom tree. Well, it's a picture of God's anger and righteous judgment. Because it's, it's matching the deceitful tongues are like arrows of evil shot at the heart. And what he's saying is they will get arrows of God's wrath in return. But not just that, he's picturing these burning coals from the broom tree. So that's a juniper tree also, probably something you don't know about in the ancient world, that they would use broom trees because they were understood the wood to burn the longest. Burn the hottest. So what do deceitful tongues get but the long-lasting, soul-searing anger of God's judgment? Such is the evil that belongs to words of lies and 
deceit. That's why one old pastor said, shun slander as eagerly as you would avoid hell. For such is the judgment that falls upon a wrong use of words. It's, of course, judgment that even Jesus Christ himself speaks of, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 12, where he says, I tell you this, that you will be held accountable for every careless word you speak. It's by your words that you will be justified. It's by your words that you will be condemned. And it's important here to even see from verse 3 and 4, I don't think the psalmist is, is praying for this judgment to fall upon his enemies as much as he's just predicting this is going to be the judgment that falls upon his enemies. And why that's important to see is that he's showing us in his godliness what it means to trust the Lord's righteousness. As Romans chapter 12, quoting from the Old Testament, tells us, Vengeance is mine. So we don't repay evil with evil. We entrust the judgment and the righteousness to God. And many of you know exactly how hard it is to entrust righteous judgment to God alone when words are used wrongly against you. You know, it's so often true that we hear something that's been wrongly said about us and we then begin to add it to our brain's list of a long account. You know, your spouse speaks insensitively to you and you respond with the silent treatment. Or maybe someone at work has spoken wrongly about you behind your back. And so just around the water cooler, you make it clear to know to the other employees that he or she is not really that good of a worker anyway. So why care about their perspective? It can be true even in the church that someone's misrepresented your life, someone's misrepresented your view. And so you just casually drop lines along the way to know that the person that's done the misrepresentation, well, they don't have everything all together themselves. Or kids, isn't it maybe true that maybe a sibling will cut you down and you'll come to the next family meal and cut him or her down, all with joking and sarcasm in the intent, right? Judgment belongs to deceitful language. So it's a prayer for deliverance. Of course, it's a warning about deceit. And then what we see in the rest of the passage, it's a cry in distress. It's a cry in distress. It's why it's such a longing for peace. One of my favorite professors that still is teaching in a Christian institution once wrote a famous article that was shared certainly in a number of pastoral circles that was titled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And in the course of that article, he asked the question, what can miserable Christians sing? Because he was looking at normal songs that churches would sing today. And how they're just always triumphalistic in their tone with all the words and with all the images. It's just, oh, the Christian life is nothing more than one steady increase towards heaven of unstopped joy and there's no suffering along the way. But what about Christians who know misery? What about Christians who know difficulty? What about Christians who know adversity? What do they sing? Well, he rightly said, just sing the Psalms. Because what you see here at the beginning of the Psalms of Ascent, this is not a happy psalm. It's a hard one. It's an honest one. This one doesn't end with some sort of triumphalistic crescendo. Notice verse 5 and 6. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech. I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. Meshech would have been modern-day Asia Minor. Kedar would have been in the area of Arabia. For this psalmist at the time, it would have almost represented the ends of the earth. 
And of course, kids, he's saying, I'm not actually there currently living in both Asia Minor or Arabia. But he's saying as he's surrounded by all of this deceit, as he's surrounded by all these words of war, it's as though he's living in these pagan nations, surrounded by godless people. That's why he can say, of course, even in verse 7, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's almost as though he seems as though he's done with it. I just can't take it anymore. All of this imprison-like reality with words. Now you want to recognize, of course, that when you come to Jesus Christ, life in the world is always often going to feel like Meshech and Kadar. You should expect out there, there'll be lies, there'll be deceit, there'll be all kinds of warlike words thrown your way. And parents, one of the great things that you're trying to do with your children is help them to understand it often is hard, isn't it? Life in the world is his pilgrim people. They hated me, Jesus said, so they're going to hate you too. But let us recognize that we should always not be surprised that out there it feels like Meshach and Kedar, that it's just war, it's not peace. But in here, it should never feel like war. It should always feel like peace. I've been in churches before preaching and teaching and, and left with this kind of ineffable sense of that was strange. And come to find weeks afterward that they're just at war with each other. God's people who proclaim faith in Jesus Christ who is what? The Prince of Peace. And let that be true of you as well, because some of you, more often than you might realize, can enter in this place with a warlike spirit, ready to war against your leaders, ready to war against those that God has called His children, ready to war against those that Christ calls His brothers and sisters, warring against things that have been changed according to your preference, warring against noises, warring against other things that upset your sensibilities, when you're meant to come in here and what? No Christ's peace. And how you come in here and speak and talk will in every way dictate the degree to which this congregation knows peace. So we come in here, of course, not to make this a war zone of words. We come in here, like the psalmist, speaking peace, that it might be a palace of peace, because pilgrims that love the Lord Jesus Christ are those who strive for peace and are in anguish, aren't they, without it? Some years ago, I spent almost the entire month of November in the United Arab Emirates preparing and playing for this soccer tournament. And it was during those years when our nation's geopolitics were largely defined by the war on terror. And so we spent the entire month there on a U.S. Air Force base, never allowed off the grounds unless we were training for this tournament or actually playing in any of the tournament games. And so many of us have been playing for soccer for so long that we would often say, well, it's been 11 years since we've had Thanksgiving at home. And here it is. We're actually doing so well in this tournament, we're going to miss Thanksgiving again now, with each passing day. Uh, what you found in our uh, team's experience was this incredible longing of, of homesickness. We're way over there. Yet they're back here. We're just travelers passing through. We don't really care about the surroundings. We want to get back home. Because tourists, you know, they care about the surroundings. Travelers, they just care about the destination. That's true in the Christian's life as a pilgrim life 
Yes, we care about the surroundings and we want to respond to the circumstances God brings our way with joy and peace and steadfastness and endurance. But we're not tourists here, are we? We're travelers marching ever on to the celestial city that is above Mount Zion to heavenly Jerusalem and that each passing week we're marching ever on. Sometimes that march is going to be difficult, isn't it? Because words will strike your soul. What then can we do as God's people marching ever on towards God's city above? Well, from this song, let me just remind you of three simple truths as we begin to close. Number one, tongues are powerful. Tongues are powerful. I trust it's no revolutionary statement to say tongues are powerful. But too often, don't you think that we forget tongues are powerful? With a word, you can destroy. With a sentence, you can crush. With a phrase, you can kill. Or with a word, you can encourage. With a sentence, you can edify. With a phrase, you can give life. And so, I students, even if you were blind, the Bible tells us you could still spot who a true Christian is, such as the power of words. Didn't Jesus say, out of the overflow of the heart? The mouth speaks. Uh, Trust then that your tongue is doing something powerful in others' lives. And I wonder what kind of power it brings. Is it power for Christ? Or is it power for hell? Is it power for good? Or is it power for evil? Number two, trouble brings us to God. It's not just telling us that tongues are powerful. It's that trouble is a good thing. It brings us to God. Even the original language of verse 1, it gives the preeminence and the prominence to God because it says, to the Lord in my distress I cried and he answered. We don't translate it in that way, but that's what you want to see. It's always trouble bringing us to the Lord if we have the eyes of the Spirit in our circumstances. And trouble is an occasion that brings us to God. Is your trouble that you're currently facing It's perhaps even your suffering that God has brought your way, bringing you to God, to talk with God. Maybe it's true in your own life that you're like many people in this world, that trouble strikes and suffering increases and calamity comes, and you talk a lot to other people, friends, family members, even church members, but never actually get around to talking to God. A trouble is an occasion that God has given you that you might learn that you can come to Him. That you can trust that he is going to answer you. That you can believe he alone can unlock that prison that has you bound. This is, of course, telling us that tongues are powerful, that trouble brings us to God. And and thirdly, no doubt, it is telling us that we must take our deceit to Jesus Christ. Sometimes you come to sermons like this, studies like this, and think, well, I sure hope that person that slandered me years ago would hear this sermon. You know what that person said last week? I really hope they're in the room right now. But you've lied, haven't you? You too have deceived, slandered, and misrepresented out of evil intent. God's fire-tipped arrows should go to, to your soul, shouldn't they? That the fury of his hellfire and wrath belongs to you. I was speaking with someone in our church, a uh, a young kid recently, and you love when kids talk to you in this way. They said, hell is before my eyes, and I just don't know what to do about it. It was after a recent evening service, and it was totally sincere. This young eight-year-old, I just, hell is there. 
I don't know what to do about it. And you know what you say to such a soul? Yeah, hell is there. And all you need to do is look to Jesus Christ. He uttered no deceit, the text tells us. He committed no sin. When he suffered, he didn't threaten and revile in return. What did he do? He entrusted, as the psalmist does, his life to the God who judges justly. In his distress, he came to the Lord, didn't he? In his trouble, he bowed his knee before the Father. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that took the arrows of God's wrath that your heart deserves, that he might take them into his very own heart and do what? Preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. Interestingly, the phrase of I am for peace that starts verse 7 in the original is just I peace. You could translate it as I am peace. Who then does this psalm really come from? He who is peace. Jesus Christ himself, who alone can give peace to world-weary travelers, to his pilgrim saints that long for, that look for, that labor for, his peace. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you minister to us in the midst of our sorrows and afflictions, surely even in this room this day. There are those who feel imprisoned by words. Lord, free them by the grace and mercy and the peace of Jesus Christ, that we might, even as we are making our march towards your heavenly home, find his comfort and find his consolation. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.